Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. My chat, my chat. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies. They say it's not practical enough, just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he thought, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got See the importance of biblical theology. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Another episode of Theology Matters. I am your co- I am your host, uh, 
Devin Palou, and I have my beautiful bride, Melissa Palou, on the line as my co-host. You there, hon? I'm here. Hey, everybody. <laughs> well, we hope you guys all had a great week. Um, really good to be back with you again. We've been doing this show now for probably about two months or so, and uh, had a lot of a lot of wonderful uh, feedback and. Uh, about to meet a lot of a lot of neat people, so good to be on again. So sure let's, uh, let's try to open up with a word of prayer here, and then we can dive right into the show. Lord, we just want to thank you, Lord, for giving us another day to be able to uh, worship you, Lord, to be able to wake up, Lord, to be able to think on the things of God. Uh, we just ask, Lord, that... Um, as our words go out today, Lord, that they'll be edifying, encouraging to people, Lord, that they'll equip them. Maybe, Lord, that those who had questions, who didn't know there were answers to some of these questions, Lord, would, would see that there is, and that it would help build them up and uh, edify them, Lord. Pray this in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, what is, uh, maybe for some of the new listeners, Melissa, what is um, what is the purpose of our show? Why, why, why do we exist? Well, why do we exist? Um, we um, thought about this show because um, I know that I have always had a lot of questions about the faith. I know that you did, Devin, as well, growing up. Um, and we just thought, we thought that this would be a great way to you know, share our personal journey with people, um, as well as to deal with a lot of the tough topics um, within Christianity, a lot of apologetic issues and um, theology issues and Christian worldview issues, and um, to strengthen our faith, to strengthen the faith of others, hopefully, and hopefully that those who don't who don't know the Lord or believe in the existence of God, you know, will come to know him as well through this. Um, but I think the goal is that all of us would have a, a closer walk with the Lord wherever we are, um, so I know that that's, that's really heavy on our hearts, and I hope that, that the Lord does accomplish that through this show. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. So as Melissa says, it's really our heart is that we want to see people grow and uh, come to the knowledge of our, of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. We've seen, you know, we've seen many people, um, when introduced to, to theology, to apologetics, Christians that were in the church for years, when they're really introduced to this stuff, and they just they just take off. We, we've had several of them on our on our show, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that was another thing. I think uh, another idea behind the show was there's so many brilliant people out there, Christians who have studied and thought through a lot of tough issues and read and and gone to school and learned so many awesome things. Um, that all of us don't always get an opportunity to, uh, to 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 learn, you know, through you know because of life and responsibilities. But there are people who who have taken the time to really get trained in a lot of deep theological and apologetic issues, philosophical issues. So we thought this would be a great avenue to allow them to come on to share their knowledge and what they've learned and what the Lord has given them with those um, who may need that understanding and knowledge and wisdom. Um, so th- that in and of itself is just, you know, we see it as a tool for the body of Christ that those who are teachers are, are getting that opportunity to, to teach and um, to share their gifts with the body of Christ and, and to get that experience in speaking. And also for those 
uh, who are who have questions or just you know want to be trained uh, to get to get their questions answered as well. So it's kind of twofold in that way as well. That's right, absolutely. Um, yeah, we, we want to thank uh, we want to thank thank a lot of the a lot of the uh, students and and professors at Southern Evangelical Seminary, uh, mm-hmm. Lamine Melissa School for giving of their time and um, and coming. You know, and also they've invested, you know, in me and Melissa. Right. Um, you know, to be able to to deal with a lot of the hard issues that, that we see on um, that we have on the show. Right. You know, it takes to study and it takes time to uh, to know a lot of these things. You know, so definitely. Yeah, uh, thank yeah you. I was going to also add the people that we asked to come on here are not just, you know, they're obviously very smart people and scholarly people who are very studied and learned. But these are people that we know personally as well who who are, are they are the real deal in terms of their faith, living out their faith. So when they're talking about Christianity, they're not talking about some abstract concept that they don't um that they don't embrace, but this is something that they truly believe and live on a daily basis. So the people that we brought to you are people that we know personally, um, who are who live out their faith every day and who, who pour into us. You know, not only in terms of the knowledge and wisdom that they have, but just in terms of of their their character and their their love and their wisdom. So, you know, that's that's one of the things. I mean, as you um, you know, as you listen to these people that come on the air, these are these people are, are really special to us. Absolutely, a lot of them have have uh, been mentors to both me and my wife. So, mm-hmm. um, get a few housekeeping things out of the way. Uh, first thing is, if you've not liked our page yet on Facebook, shame on you. You need to go to Facebook. <laughs> go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the blues. Facebook.com slash theology matters with the blues. Through the week, we try and put up different articles, different videos uh, to kind of help, you know, give you guys some food during the week. Um, it's a very mm-hmm. good discussion can can occur on there. And so we would invite uh, invite you guys to come on, um, like the page, and uh, feel free to share it on your Facebook, and maybe have friends or family uh, that uh, that don't know the Lord or that may have questions. You know, we want to encourage you guys to get this show out uh, because that's that's why we exist. Right. Um, another uh, housekeeping thing is um, we do have a coming up. Well, we don't have, but Southern Evangelical Seminary is putting on, once again, the National Conference on Christian Apologetics, which will take place October 19th to the 20th in Charlotte, North Carolina, at Central Church of God. And the theme for this year's conference is Real World Christianity, and you're going to hear some amazing speakers. This conference is being put on by Southern Evangelical Seminary um, in conjunction with Ravi Zacharias Ministries. So you're going to hear a lot of amazing speakers um, from Josh McDowell uh, to, um, I have a list of speakers here, I'm sorry, Jay Richards, Josh McDowell, um, Hugh Ross will be there, um, Henry Morris III will be there, Richard Howe will be there, um, John Lennitz from Oxford University will be there. Um, so you don't want to miss this conference. There's, um, if you go to the website conference, .scs.edu, you can get more information about the conference, and um, I will likewise put that up um, in our in our chat room. 
Great. And actually, Absolutely. early bird registration is expiring on September the 1st. So if you want to get the early bird rate, you'll need to register by September the 1st. And there are group rates available as well. So. Yeah, if you guys have never been to the National uh, Conference on Christian Apologetics, you do not want to miss it. I mean, it is it is our favorite time of the year. You know, it is such a great time. They are some of the greatest minds uh, in Christianity. Um, be able to to uh, lecture and always uh, have a have a lot of vendors there. So if you're interested in in uh, adding to your library, as I always am, that's uh, that's my biggest advice. My wife will tell you is, uh, is <laughs> library. So yeah, we definitely, but, yeah, so. the UPS guys are very familiar with the with our home. You know, between delivering books all the time. So <laughs> that's right. We're on a first name basis. So uh, a couple other things, real quick. Um, those who, who may not know, I do run a blog. Uh, if you Google my name, uh, it's Devin D E V I N. Last name is Pellew, P-E-L-L-E-W. Just Google that name, and my blog, Holy Trinity, will come up. I have a lot of videos, articles. Uh, I've been doing that for about five or six years now. Uh, so it, it is full of full of good stuff. So, uh, Melissa, how about give us an update on little baby Pellew? Um, Let's see. Not that much of an update this week. We um, We did enter our second trimester. So um, we're, we're thankful to get to that point, and um, baby is growing, and a lot of the sickness is worn off, so I'm starting to feel more like myself again. I know that that's soon to wear off <laughs> as time progresses in the pregnancy, but we're we're at 12 weeks now, and um, just continue to thank you all for your prayers. And, you know, like I said, the first trimester was a pretty difficult period for us in terms of losing one of our one of our babies, Um uh, due to miscarriage, um, but we uh, were blessed to be able to still carry one of our twins. And so um, it's just been a, a miracle and a blessing and um, looking forward to uh, when he or she gets here. That's right. And uh, as always, we have our chat room open as well. Uh, we got Steve Keeney in there. Give a shout-out to Steve Keeney in the chat room. Uh, he's hey, there too. <laughs> <laughs> to answer questions. Uh, so feel free if you have questions. Uh, Steve's in there. He can help you out. So Yeah, and if you have questions in terms, you know, things that you don't, you may not want to call in about, but that you do want uh, expressed on the air, you can, um, you know, submit those in the chat room as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so with that being said, I actually have a uh, friend on the line. Uh, his name is Blake, and we try and bring somebody on, um, you know, frequently, at least once, uh, you know, once a week when we do our show to have them come on and talk about how theology and apologetics has helped them and played a role in their life. And uh, Blake is a good friend of mine, and uh, kind of have him tell us a little yeah. bit about him. And hey, more. How, how are you doing this? How are you doing today, guys? Hey, Blake, thanks so much for coming on. You bet. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I just wanted to share with everyone that Blake is a graduate of Southern Evangelical Seminary, and he works with Rashio Christie Ministries, a college apologetics ministry, and he'll definitely share more about that with us. But uh, really great to have you on, and, um, yeah, thank you so much, Blake, for taking time out of your day to come in. Well, thanks, thanks for asking me. 
Yeah, we love Blake. He's he's uh, gotten up for for a long time and uh, been able to have a good friendship with him. So, uh, Blake, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a little background. Well, I had a little bit of a um, interesting upbringing, religious upbringing, uh, that kind of plays into what I'm doing now. And I work for an apologetics Christian apologetics organization, uh, but really. The reason I'm there doing that now is born out of my life story. I basically grew up on a small farming commune in New England, basically a a quasi-Christian sect or cult, and a very unique uh, religious environment. We kept a lot of the Old Testament laws, a lot of the the, um, kosher laws and... and, uh, the Old Testament feasts, feasts and Sabbaths, and we kept uh, Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, and and um, <clears throat> tried to keep a lot of the a lot of the Old Testament laws intact. We had our own prophet, and uh, that I mean we were encouraged to read the Bible, uh, and the, the Bible was strongly uh, pushed on us. But it was always through the interpretive lens of uh, of the, uh, the the leadership and the the prophet that we had had, <clears throat> and so it was a it was a very uh, strict legalistic uh, upbringing. Wow! And I had a uh, loving family and and uh, good in that way, but it was a very kind of authoritarian uh, type of religious background. And grew up, uh, grew up in that. Uh, lived on this farming commune until I was 15, and and then uh, still part of the church, but uh, lived <clears throat> lived uh, another location through my high school years, and then went back to the uh, the college, the small college that this group had, and um, even kind of further introduced into their theology. It was, it was basically a weird mix of uh, good Bible, um, good content from the Bible, and uh, a very legalistic uh, go back to the Old Testament, uh, ignored the the grace aspect of things. And so it was, a, I'd say it was kind of a, an oppressive spiritual situation. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so that that was kind of my my formative experience in religion, and uh, you know, basically wanted to please God. Wanted to, uh, other than some rebellious times in, in high school, whatever, he come back to come back to wanting to follow God and, and to pursue Him. But basically, found that my own righteousness was as filthy rags, and I couldn't, no matter how hard I tried to be, you know, as good and to live up to the standards that were put before us, I couldn't couldn't keep those things. <clears throat> and, but, but what we were, what we were told, I mean, it was very much a, kind of a secluded sort of Christianity where we didn't listen to outside, things outside of our own walls very much. I was, uh, you know, considered kind of dangerous or, uh, it would bring in outside influences into the truth that we had, and so we were taught to believe, simply believe without without thinking, without questioning. Hmm. Wow. Wow. So, how did that lead to, or uh, how did how did you end up in, in of all places, 
Southern Evangelical Seminary Saint Apologetics from having that type of background. Right. Well, uh, that is a it's a uh, kind of a long and winding story, but it's kind of the the short the short version is that uh, number one, the Holy Spirit, uh, Christ led us out of that. My my uh, young bride, myself, uh, were, were led out of that circumstance really through beginning to see some things that had gone on in that organization, uh, see some bad things that had happened. And I really began to question because we had been told, you know, just believe. So you're, you're, you're put a, a, a number of truths put in front of you and you're told just to believe them and you believe them and then you find out some of them were false. And so, uh, you know, very clearly, factually false. And so you begin to question everything. And you begin to question the paradigm of how do, how do you come to truth? How do you evaluate truth? And so really it was kind of an earth-shaking period in my life uh, where I was reinvestigating, you know, who God mm-hmm. was, who Jesus was, you know, was anything that we were taught true, and had to decipher very carefully between some things that we had learned, you know, from the Bible stories and some of the good things about God. <clears throat> I had to discern between that and um, this mixed theological bag. And again, I can just say, by the grace of God, came out of that. But it was a very difficult process, a very hard, arduous process of determining not just what I didn't care anymore about being told, "Hey, just believe this." I wanted to know if it was really true, and that's a completely different thing to say, "Oh, I believe this," as opposed to saying, "I believe this because it has, you know, it's factual and it has support and it's believable." And so right. I kind of began that <clears throat> began that process in my own life of uh, investigating uh, kind of my religious underpinnings again. And in that process, uh, thank the Lord, got into some good evangelical churches and was being taught <clears throat> uh, good doctrine, but still really going through kind of an investigative phase in my in my life and really stumbled into some good uh, theological content. That really helped me. <clears throat> that well thought out uh, content that really dug into the scriptures and looked at the scriptures in context, mm-hmm. uh, and started to see those, read those resources, and and through other people uh, in one of the churches I was in, uh, got connected with uh, kind of apologetics and started to look at other. Uh, you know, other cults out there and saw how familiar a lot of those things were with what I grew up with. <clears throat> but one of the disturbing things in that process was to uh, investigating and looking and seeing good theology, <clears throat> but being in in uh, churches and seeing that though they had right theology, their methodology uh, was very similar, often very similar to the cults in that they would tell you, hey, just believe, mm-hmm. just believe this, just believe what we're telling you. And that sort of <clears throat> that sort of methodology, although their end product was right, their, the, the, the way that they were getting people to that point, <clears throat> um, I saw as, as destructive because I had been in an organization, in a religious upbringing that had used those particular uh, methodologies, um, to very bad ends, and okay. Wow. Well, that's that's neat that you that you saw those parallels from your past into you know your current uh, 
you know, in the situations around you with the within Christianity in general. Yeah, and again, it was kind of a it was, it was kind of a, a process of learning to discern, learning to really evaluate things, and and if someone you know throws something out at you or preaches something or or tells you, hey, the Bible says this, I really wasn't content anymore just to to believe it. You know, just at face value, and I really dig in and and look at the scripture and look at the context and look at the broader narrative, look at what was going on in scripture, look at what God was saying uh, right. to the people when He wrote it to them, and 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 again in that process, got involved in a group at uh, at a church. It was an apologetics uh, kind of study group, and we just spent <clears throat> many years together just studying before we did anything, and then began to. I began uh, to teach in the church, and my my interest in apologetics continued to grow as I basically found satisfactory answers to questions mm-hmm. that I had. I had many many questions based on my my upbringing, and but found satisfactory answers. And at the same time, as you find those satisfactory answers, you're looking at <clears throat> some situations within evangelical Christianity where they may be giving good answers, but the the method that they're teaching students to learn by, or, you know, just believe me because you know the, I'm the I'm the pastor, or uh, right. you know, if I just believe me, <clears throat> saw that that could actually be destructive in the end, where students then take that methodology, go off to college, and are going to use that same methodology, which is just believe the, mm-hmm. the next best, brightest, most articulate person in your life, which in the case of going to college happens to be your your professor. Right. And is very intelligent and has more background information than their parents or their pastor, and so their methodology is believe the most articulate, educated authority in your life. <clears throat> if that's your methodology, you're going to take that right into college, and you're going to you're going to uh, employ that same method, and you are going to like, change your minds on the facts, and you're going to you're going to fall away from Christianity. Yeah, like let me ask you a question real quick with that, because I know you've only got a few minutes before you have to run. Uh, really quick, how does that tie into what you're doing right now at Ratio? Christy, I know you, you've got to go at 6.30, so you got about three minutes. How does that, what you're saying in that, how does that tie into to what you're doing at Ratio Christy, what is Ratio Christy, and kind of how's it, how's it uh, helping uh, Christians? Yeah, well, I saw the destructive, um, how, how bad theology and, and the lack of apologetics can lead you in a bad direction, as, a, as in my own life, and, and be, began to, as you find satisfactory answers, you begin to want to share those with other people and want to help other people. And you see the students now, uh, <clears throat> good evangelical Christian students that are involved in youth group and Sunday school, and they're now going off to college, and 50 to 80% of them, depending on what study you look at, are are falling away from the faith. And so um, in my seminary experience, got involved with this group, Rasher Christie, that is going on to the campuses and providing reasonable, scientific, historical, philosophical answers to the truth of Christianity, uh, to the, the reasons for God, the reasons for the resurrection, um, giving evidence for those things <clears throat> that are to be believed and then to be trusted into. Uh, we're supposed to you know, trust in God, but we're not supposed to trust in something that doesn't have any evidence. And so <clears throat> I got involved with this group, Rasher Christie. I'm now on staff with them um, on an administrative level and, and recruiting and helping other people um, <clears throat> understand apologetics and helping high school students and college students see that there are answers to their faith. Uh, but Rasher Christie is an organization that's planting Christian apologetics groups um, 
Discipleship of the Christian Mind groups on college campuses, university campuses all over the country. How, how many now, campuses are you all on right now, Blake? We're now at uh, starting in, in various stages of development at about 86 or 87 different universities. Wow. And, and that includes um, dark holes like uh, Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and some other wow. very liberal schools to very large schools like Ohio State University or Texas A&M. <clears throat> to small liberal arts schools to you know all over the country and we're planting student led clubs on those campuses that are explicitly for the purpose of defending the Christian faith defending the reasons that we should believe Christianity and they're interacting both with Christians and helping and equipping them and and really keeping them um, in the faith <clears throat> helping those that are struggling as many students at, at at college that are getting bombarded with a lot of uh, atheistic arguments and they don't know how to address those, have never been faced with those issues, we're taught how to defend them and so we're helping them and we're also interacting with a lot of atheists and agnostics and and right. unbelievers of many sorts on, on campus and, and giving them the truth of, of Jesus Christ and training students to be disciples, to be very careful thinkers, to be theologians and uh-huh. to be apologists and to be evangelists on campus. That's, that is awesome, and that is so needed. And I mean, I encourage uh, students to you know try to find a Ratio Christie club on your campus. If there's not one, um, uh, the website is ratiochristie.org. And you know, if you're interested in maybe starting one, and um, I know that you can get in touch with Blake and others, and they could help you or get people out there to help you with that. Um, so that website is ratiochristie.org. Um, and um, Blake, thank you so much for what you're doing and sure, investing you in, in young people and in the future and and building up the Christian mind is definitely definitely needed and definitely praying for your work to continue and all those involved with Ratio Christie as well. Well, thank you very uh, much. And I don't know if we said this or not, but Ratio Christi is Latin, it's a Latin term and it means the reason of Christ. It's a Latin translation or a Latin phrase that means the reason of Christ, and it's R-A-T-I-O, and then Christi, C-H-R-I-S-T-I dot org. Mm-hmm. So R-A-T-I-O, C-H-R-I-S-T-I dot org. And yep. thanks, and thanks I, for I did having me on. I did throw the link up in our, uh, in our chat room so that it, those in the chat room can check it out as well. But, like, we thank you so much for coming on and for sharing all that about your, your personal journey and about what the Lord's doing right now in your life and... You know, as we were saying earlier, we have so many dear friends that we bring on the air, and we're just we're so blessed to have you and your wife, Carol, and your your kids in our life. And you guys are just wonderful believers and wonderful examples to us. You know, in terms of your walk with the Lord as well. Well, thank you, <clears throat> thank you, and I appreciate your friendship as well. And uh, just leave this with your listeners: theology does matter. Amen. Exactly Amen. the name of the show. <laughs> Thank you, Blake, so much for your time. Send your best, uh, send her, uh, your your wife our love. Have a great day. You too. Uh, easy for you to say there, Melissa. I know. I'm just getting. I've been tongue tied like all day. I don't know what what's going on. I can't talk, so maybe I should just not talk the rest of the show or something. Hey, let me. Uh, Steve in the chat room had brought up another good point. Uh, for those who cannot make the apologetics uh, conference here in the, on the East Coast. Uh, they are having one out in California uh, on the West Coast. The dates are, uh, looks like, November 9th uh, and 10th. And you'll have guys like uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, who's uh, 
kind of my mentor and hero of the faith, along with uh, his son David Geisler doing conversational apologetics, uh, Josh McDell, Erwin uh, Lutzer, and uh, Doug Guyvet. So it's really awesome that we have, you know, some great schools. We have Biola uh, in California, and we have Southern Evangelical on the East Coast. It is just awesome to see that there's more and more, uh, you know, seminaries and schools. Yeah, and Veritas as well out there yep, yep. in California, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. You have Veritas, you have Biola, and then, of course, out here you have uh, SES, so... Um, we're blessed. We're blessed that the Lord is raising up some great schools, some great, uh, some great young people to, to take over the the, the reins. Uh, in fact, we just had a couple of students uh, in our young college adult uh, ministry at our church just started their first day of class uh, last night, actually. Yeah. Yeah, at SES. So we're so excited for them, for Daryl and Christine. So proud of you guys. So we need we need more more young uh, more young students and, and people getting involved. So we actually have a call, which is funny. I haven't given the number out yet, but uh, I think I know who this is. Thomas, be there. Yep, I have the number memorized. <laughs> How are you guys? Hey, Thomas. What's going on, man? Oh, I have a headache. Um, like there's no tomorrow, but um, I just wanted to call in and um, like I do every now and then, and offer just a a word of encouragement, actually, based on the topic of your show. Um, you guys in the in the um in the description, you was talking about some of the attributes of God and. Myself also being a minister of the gospel, which I'm sure you guys know, I don't ever talk about it, but that's fine. But um, the biggest thing that I love about you two is that um, you guys have one of, well, you guys have and you exhibit the most important attribute of God in your life and that is the love of God because you know a lot of times especially when it comes to Christian apologetics sometimes we can get so caught up in the the discussions and in the defense of our faith that we forget the very first verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1, which says, Though I speak with the tongue, tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am just a clanging brass or a tinkling mm-hmm. cymbal. Right. And, and um, I, listen, I listen to you guys quite a bit. And now, I must commend you, Devin. You you do tend to keep in control on the soapbox because there'd be some interesting individuals on there who <laughs> who wow I'm and I'm just like okay if they're representing Christianity I'm glad I know Devin and Melissa because you know but anyway it <laughs> it is very important that that you guys are exhibiting that and I think that's awesome and just keep up the Aww. good work. That's all I wanted to say. 
Well, thank you, Thomas, and thank you for giving us the opportunity to be on uh, on the slot on Thursdays. We really appreciate you, brother, so much. Well, and I do oh, have ahead. this to say. Just depending on how much you like doing the show, when my network is built, it's not BTR. It's something else that's being built, actually. Um, you guys will have the options of doing your own show every five days a week, but it'll be in a specific it'll be in a specific time slot, and as as being part one of the shows that's a part of the beta testing, meaning that you guys will be part of a few shows that we choose to um you know to have be a part of the network for free because we're testing it there there mm-hmm. be no cost associated with it yeah. the only thing you guys would do is say if you guys wanted to support apologetics ministries you know raise you know do some type of fundraising then you guys could have your own ad so those ads okay. would be for cool. for y'all's show because you guys would be a part of the network, so there wouldn't be any airtime fees that you guys would be paying. So that option. Okay. Well, we definitely look forward to talking to you more about that for sure. That's awesome and exciting. All righty. God you bless, Thomas. You're welcome. You guys have a good day and keep up the good work. You too, Thanks, brother. Man. All right. That's Thomas. Always appreciate his calling in, and uh, and uh, I tell you, you know, it's a very high compliment. To, it's uh, you know to hear that uh, people think you exhibit the uh, the love of Christ. I mean, it's not always. In fact, it's never just about the argument. Uh, you know, the, the role of apologetics is to really remove a lot of the stumbling blocks away for people to eventually, uh, you know, let them get to the get to the faith. And, um, you know, God the Holy Spirit will certainly use arguments, as he did with me. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home, and, um, you know, I just didn't have a whole lot of evidence. And, and let me say this, you know, not everybody needs evidence. Not everybody needs arguments. Um, not everybody does, you know, but there are a lot that do. And we're living in a culture that is more and more and more hostile uh, to the faith. And so, you know, why why arguments and this kind of stuff is, is not going to win somebody to Christ uh, necessarily. Um, arguments and uh, apologetics certainly can knock down obstacles that a lot of times uh, hinder people to from coming to Christ. Um, but with that being said, uh, the goal is, of course, is not to just win an argument, uh, but, the, but the goal, of course, is to reach people for, for Christ. Right. Yeah, and to give, you know, and not only, you know, apologetics is not only for the unbeliever, it's also for the believer as well. Because as we study our faith out more and more and find answers to our own questions, it does deepen our faith in Christ. I think that people um, have this idea that the more you study, the more you learn, the more that you uh, tend to trust in yourself and your own knowledge and the further from Christ you are because you're no longer living a life of faith and um, you're just trying to rationalize everything. And I just think think that's so far from the truth. I think that that can happen, 
But that's more about the condition of someone's heart than it is about actually uh, them just being a student of God's Word. Because the person who's studying God's Word and the person who's really wanting to know more and to have answers and and to know more about their faith is a person who really wants to know God. and we're encouraged in script, or commanded in Scripture to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, our minds, and our strength. So our minds are to be actively growing in the knowledge of Christ, and we, and we should as we are that we should be maturing in Christ, you know. And so I think that apologetics again is not just for the unbeliever in terms of defending our faith to them, but it's for us to give us a firm foundation to know what we believe, why we believe it as well. Absolutely is. Uh, we were actually looking at an article today, Melissa. You had posted it on your on your Facebook. Tell us a little bit about that article. Um, well, just kind of a brief summary of the article. It's, uh, there's a uh, a former pastor of 20 years. He was a, a Pentecostal pastor in the South um, who who left uh, his ministry, uh, pronounced that he was an atheist, and he now is uh, an activist, an atheist activist, um, through the Freedom for Religion Foundation. And he is a part of their clergy project, which basically um, is an online group of clergy, who those either who are still clergy or who are former clergy, who have denounced their faith and uh, embrace atheism. And um, so he, he runs that, or he's a big part of that now, and he just, in this article, and I'll post it in the chat room and we'll uh, post it on our Facebook page as well, but in this article he goes into this process of him losing his faith um, and what it, what that looked like in his life, um, how he was unable to call upon God in difficult circumstances. And when he was praying for his parishioners, he just, he really, um, it was a struggle for him to even acknowledge God because he really was convinced that God did not exist. Um, and he talks about this process of leaving the faith, leaving his church, embracing his atheism, becoming an atheist activist, um, and all this all this is going on while he's still living in his small town in the South. So he's in the middle of the Bible Belt in this small town where he obviously is surrounded by these people who he used to pastor. Um, and uh, and he just talks about that process. Um, it's, it's actually very eye-opening. Um, it's also very sad. Um, and, it, and it presents to me, I think, a lot of, of um, challenges to the church today in terms of um, how we do need to be training up the Christian mind. Um, not necessarily to, because this guy um, could have had a, a ton of different reasons for leaving the faith, um, which had nothing to do with intellectual uh, reasons. But it just seems that he, he does embrace atheism because he does think that it is more rational and logical. And... Um, it's just a shame that being in ministry for that long that uh, he didn't uh, read some of the writings or, or come across some of the arguments that, that really do show that Christianity is true. Very, very true. Um, our friend Frank Turk, who we actually will hopefully be having on the, on the uh, show soon, deals with this, I mean, uh, with, with his ministry. And some of the stats, I mean, are just ridiculous. Right. Like, what is it, 75% of college kids in their first their first year of of of, uh, of college who come from Christian homes abandon the faith? Right. It's a very high percentage. Um, this article even, I, I need to find the actual line in the article, but it, it gave a very high percentage of people 
who were for, through a Pew survey of of uh, people's actual belief system, and a lot of people didn't really who who filled out the survey. Uh, did not have a faith, or they were just going to church to go to church. They they were either atheists, agnostics, skeptics, something of that level, or they didn't know what they were, but they didn't necessarily ascribe that Christianity was the only way. Um, I, I think that that's very common. I think in our churches, I think that there are people there who are there because church is cultural to them, and they are not necessarily convinced that Christianity is true, Um they they are more uh, by the most by our standards uh, moral people as we look at their lives and uh, in that from the outside looking in and but they may not be convinced that Christianity is true um, and one of the thoughts that I had as I was reading the article is that we do need to create an environment within our churches where people are free to be open about their doubts um, because I, I think that that was one of the things that that this former pastor experienced or expressed was. You know, as he's losing his faith, not really having anywhere to turn. Um, and I think it's that when one does have serious doubts and sincere doubts, I think it would be awesome to have a network of people within churches who they can go to and speak with and, and deal with that. And, and even as pastors, there needs to be other people that they can go to and feel safe and comfortable going to because I didn't realize that this was, was a problem, but now that this clergy uh, group has, has formed, the Clergy Project through Freedom From, from Religion, uh, they, they are now uh, at a, about uh, 80, 80 people in membership. So this is 80 people who are, either, who are cl- either active clergy or former clergy who are now professed atheists. So this is a growing problem. Yeah, it absolutely is. And uh, I'm telling you, you know, unless the church starts addressing some of these issues, and stop. They've got to stop with the uh, the program-centered, the purpose-driven center, the whole vision casting. You know, we've got to deal with the substance of what Christianity is. Mm-hmm. Sermons. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? What is justification by faith alone? You know, this is the thing. If we don't answer them, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons will. Be sure of that. When the Jehovah's Witness goes to the door and they start telling people right off the bat they reject the doctrine of the Trinity, and here's why, and the Christian goes back to the pastor and tells them, look, you know, I ran into a Jehovah's Witness. This is what they said about the Trinity. It's giving me problems. And they're just told to just trust in Jesus. It is not answering the question. And it does a lot of harm, and it does a lot of damage. These the college kids today, they're going into the lion's den. They're going into these colleges where people are hostile to Christianity. Right. And they have to, they have, to have answers. It, it is not good enough to just send your, your kid ill-equipped, unprepared to college or even high school or junior high mm-hmm. and think that they're not going to be affected but they're going to just remain in the faith. They're not, folks. And the stats demonstrate it. They're just not. Right. So it's very important, very important. As you can tell, we're both passionate about this, um, but it is important. Absolutely. But, uh, it's just, I mean, that drives me, That because I, I do. I, I, I obviously don't know all the answers, <laughs> and I obviously can't answer everyone's questions, but... Um, I just I hate the thought of people having questions 
and keeping them bald inside, and that those questions over over time turn into serious doubts that then can turn them away from Christianity, you know, as a whole. I just the thought of that does bother me that you know a lot of people don't feel that freedom to to be open about those doubts and and open about those questions and you know not made to feel like they're they're less of a Christian or or less of a person or um, or that they're too that they're th- that they are thinking too much. I've, I've heard that before. People have used that terminology. You know, you're thinking too much. You know, you're asking too many questions. And I, I think that's a sign. Uh, thinking is a is a wonderful sign. It's a sign that one wants to make their faith very real to them as they're thinking through these issues. And you know, like I said, I know that Devin and I both have experiences um, in terms of, of of kind of having our questions. Um, not answered and not addressed, and what that does to a person is it really demoralizes them. It makes them feel like um, they're not valuable, that their questions aren't aren't valuable because they're not being taken seriously, um, that they're thinking, uh, um, the fact that they're thinking through these issues isn't important, um, and that they're that they're not important. You know that they're not important enough to to have someone really take them and their questions seriously. So it's a lot to do with just compassion, caring for a person, listening to them, and taking them seriously. That that means a lot to people. It really does. Absolutely does. Um, I have a guest, and I actually I want him to comment on this. Um, it's, and we actually we're we're, we're going to do uh, the attributes of God today, and we're going to tackle three of the three of the the biggies. Um, but uh, I want him to comment on this because he he goes um, into the universities. He does a lot of work on these type of, uh, uh, of, of questions of faith and reason and um, would love to hear what he has to say about this. Uh, Prem, are you there, brother? I am. How are you? Uh, hi, Devin Prem, and Melissa. So How are you? In. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be with you. I just I wanted to quickly just kind of introduce Prem Isaac to our audience. Um, Prem uh, is a graduate of Southern Evangelical Seminary, where he studied philosophy, um, and he is, has been a part of the team ministry at SES. Um, he has been speaking um, at churches and universities and conferences all over the world um, on different issues related to apologetics. I know he's very um, very much studying the area of God and science, but he knows a little bit of everything, <laughs> um, anything you kind of throw at him um, in terms of philosophy and theology. Um, Prem, what are some of the countries that, that you've been in? I know you've been in South Africa. Um, well, I come from you, India. Did you go to so Italy as well? No, I went to India. I didn't go, India, through, okay. go to India through through team, but um, when I was visiting my grandmother uh, two years back, I went to India and spoke at uh, a church there. Mm-hmm. And by speaking there, I got uh, speaking engagements throughout the week as a result of speaking at the church because there were, the people were so hungry for apologetic right. material. So I ended and I up being so important. almost Prim every is, single is day native there. Of India. Um, what part of India are you from, Prem? I'm from South India. I'm from uh, the southeastern state, which is uh, Tamil Nadu. So okay. I come from... Uh, a town called Velour, which is 80 miles west of the of the coast. Awesome, and that's so awesome to yeah. see 
you, uh, you know, going back into your, your native country and, and sharing all the things that you're learning. And, um, you know, we just we love you and your wife, Annie, and your, your wonderful kids, Daniel and Sharon, and um, all that you guys um, just do here, you know, uh, in ministry and, and around the world. And, 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 and for us and our own person, Devin's and our personal lives, you guys are definitely a blessing. So I know that our audience well, is going to really enjoy getting to know you over this next hour. <laughs> Well, thank you, Melissa. Um, yeah, uh, concerning what uh, Devin, concerning what you said, uh, to your point, I can share a little bit about my personal experience about how yeah, I felt that de- demoralization, because I grew up in a Christian home, and by the time I was eight or nine, I got in- interested in science, and the more I read. Uh, science books which were, you know, made for my age, which is pretty much like middle school, early middle school, if you will. Uh, the more I read these these books, the more interested I became, but I also began to question the Bible more and more because I just felt that the theory of evolution didn't fit with what the Bible taught. And so I had all, all these questions in my mind, and I had no one to whom I could go and ask these questions. So I felt very demoralized about what it meant for me to to be a Christian. I felt that it was a step backward in in some sense because uh, it wasn't based on the the knowledge or at least what I thought was knowledge coming out of modern science. And it mm-hmm. took me, I'm thinking, another nine or ten years of being in this uh, suspended state where, you know, I was a churchgoer, I've, I read the Bible, but... I never gave my heart to the Lord because I just felt that uh, whenever I asked questions, people didn't answer them. And I was usually being told, you just have to believe this or, you know, don't use your mind. Uh, There are many things that don't make sense, but you still have to believe it. And uh, that position becomes really hard to hold the more and more you're exposed to modern science. Mm -hmm. So for me, apologetics has been a restoration, a, a way of restoring my mind I mean, I can be a Christian and use my mind, and that was uh, that was like having the lights turned on. For me. I, lo- I love, I love, I love that uh, that phrase. Apologetics was was restoring my mind. Very true. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I took up science in university. I wanted to uh, study physics and computer science, so you know, I. Finally, when I learned about apologetics, I was like, wow, there are actually strong Christians who know and understand science and are not afraid of asking and answering uh, all the questions that come up when uh, when you're, you're sharing the gospel with people who are, uh, who are very steeped in um, uh, modern science or evolutionary theory that there are actually people, well-informed people, who are informed well about the Bible and about science who can actually answer these questions. So I was hooked from the get-go um, uh, to, in, uh, in apologetics, and one thing led to another, and then you know the Lord led me to seminary. So I can actually be a part of the solution instead of just, as they say, cursing the darkness, uh, I get to light a candle, and uh, hopefully people out there can be, uh, there's something I can do or say that would uh, remove that 
demoralization that happens when you don't get your questions answered. Now, let me ask you, Prim, because I know you're in the universities a lot. I know you do a lot of work with uh, with Ratio Christie. Um, I don't know if you heard the interview, but we actually uh, just had Blake on, Blake Anderson. Yes, I was um, actually listening. Okay, okay. Um, with your work with, with different things like team events and Ratio Christie, you you know, I know you talk to a lot of the younger um, younger people who may have grown up in a Christian home who are struggling with the faith. What some of the, the the objections or some or some of the things that make them stumble uh, that you've seen? Well, I think generally uh, people grow up in a Christian home and they know that they want to be devoted to Christ and they want to identify as being Christian. And yet on the campus, they are hesitant because they feel that Christianity is not intellectually rigorous and that, you know, uh, the those who are professors and graduate students and just people who are in the secular academia will, will laugh at them. So generally, people are hesitant about uh, holding to the doctrine of creation, for example, because of the theories of evolution. Uh, some of the some of the uh, objections or questions I get have to do with, um, you know, how do you answer questions about the origin of the universe when evolution seems to give a naturalistic account, meaning that uh, the theory of evolution leads one to believe that the universe came to be with no help from a transcendent being like God. And so how do you explain, how do you reconcile scientific thinking with the book of Genesis? So that's one question. The other question has to do with the problem of evil. So in this case, uh, the problem is, you know, the Christian God, or at least the God in whom Christians believe and the God whom Christians uh, preach about, is absolutely good and absolutely powerful. Now, if that's the case, why does this absolutely good God and absolutely powerful God allow evil in the world? Perhaps it's because there is no such God. Uh, Either there's no God at all, or God isn't really as good as we think him to be, according to Scripture, or maybe he's good, but he just lacks power, and he can't really do much about the evil in the world. So either way, it just appears that the Christian God doesn't exist. So this kind of question, uh, why does God allow ye evil in the world, seems to be a very big one on co- college campuses. Um, everywhere I go, I, I always get asked a, a, a question about evil being in the world. So. Yeah, that is about the most common question. Uh, Prem, if you don't mind, we're going to take a break real quick and uh, let the... Let the listeners get up and get them something cold to drink if they want or whatever they need to do, take the dog out. Um, and we will be back in just a few minutes. Mostly got the commercial ready um, to go. I need you to hold on one second before you do that. Um, one second. Maybe keep talking, Devin. Okay. Well, I'm very good at that, as Prem can attest. <laughs> Prem, oh, let me tell you guys something. Prem, Prem is one of the big reasons that I got into apologetics at all. Uh, it was uh, 
we went to the same church, even though we really didn't know each other. Uh, I had moved here from Oregon to to get married to Melissa. Uh, that's why we could do a whole show just on that. <laughs> but uh, but me and Prem were going to the same church, and when I got sick, I was really into the uh, creation versus evolution uh, issue, and so. When I met Prim, I didn't really know anything about uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, which is actually uh, where we go. And um, he was able to uh, we just, we just talk for just like a minute and a half. And in that minute, he was telling me about uh, SES and how they learned to, to, to study the Bible and demonstrate that the Bible is true. And, I mean, it was just amazing to me. I didn't even know anything like that existed. And uh, that set the, the course for my whole life. I mean, it's, uh, it's funny how, how the Lord works, but he, uh, he definitely changed my whole life with that. So you've definitely been a, uh, a big, uh, big blessing to myself and my, and my wife. I know Melissa, Annie, is, uh, Prem's wife, has, has also been uh, a big help to you as well. So with that said, let me see here. Um, Prem, tell us a little bit. What are the attributes of God? Just before we go to our break, what are what what's uh, what can we expect within the next hour? Kind of, what does it mean when we say we're talking about the attributes of God? Well, when we talk about the attributes of God, we are trying to describe God in various ways, uh, some kind of statement that would describe what He is like. Uh, when we talk about God, God obviously is a term by which people from different religions um, imply different things. So two people, one from the Hindu religion, for example, and another one, say a Muslim, could have a conversation where they use the word God, and yet each of them mean completely different um, ideas. So in order for Christians to explain who God is as as they conceive God and as they understand the Bible, uh, the things which happen to be true of God or unique to his character and define him and set him apart from everything else uh, are called attributes. So even though God is, is um, not a physical being, there are still things that we can say about God things which are true of God that we can say about him. And so we would uh, consider those things that we say to characterize God as being attributes. So an example of God's attribute would be uh, that God is uh, morally just. So that would be an attribute, which means that he can do no evil. Uh, Another one could be that God is immutable. And by that we mean that God cannot change. So if we want to uh, look at an entire list of attributes, uh, there is a list that you could, uh, you could think of. Uh, not exclusively, but it includes things like God's immutability, which is that he cannot change. His, God's simplicity, which means that God is not made up of parts. His perfection. Um, his infinity, meaning that God has no limits. His necessity, which means that God cannot not exist. God cannot be without 
there cannot be a situation obtained where God ceases to exist. He is a necessary being. He has to exist. And we can talk about God's moral attributes like his mercy, his love, justice, uh, righteousness, holiness, uh, God's uh, complete freedom and free will, and uh, so on. Wow. There's, there's just... This is going to be good. This is going to be very good, folks. Um, let me tell you a number real quick to call in if you have questions. 760-542-3907. At 760-542-3907. And uh, when we come back, we will be ready to go, and we were going to dive into these attributes of God. Stay with us, folks. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. My name is Bobby Conway. I am here with J.T. Bridges, a professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary. Good to be with you, J.T. Thanks, Bobby. When it comes to our ignorance as Christians, where do we not want to be ignorant? Well, there there are two places that uh, uh, Christian ignorance is going to play the most havoc. Uh, the first is not being able to articulate the reason why we believe God exists. That is going to play havoc with our what we call our theoretical or our speculative life. Because if we don't have reasons for God's existence, then things like uh, the laws of logic, the fundamental principles of ethics, all of these philosophical things have no ground. The second is, how do we deal with suffering in our life? Because that is going to, if we're ignorant of how do we deal with suffering in our life, the practical resources that we get from uh, Scripture, from the Holy Spirit, from the community of faith, if we're not able to quarantine and deal with suffering in our life, it's going to cause the most practical havoc. So it's going to cause havoc in our personal relationships, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with God. Um, it's affecting the church, it's affecting the culture, and because we have, our, our minds have been diminished, the emotions have taken over, and the problem of suffering has gone unchecked, which is why atheists typically use it against Christians in apologetic situations. So knowing the existence of God and knowing how to uh, answer uh, questions about suffering, and but more than that, how to deal existentially, practically with suffering in our lives. That's uh, Professor J.T. Bridges from Southern Evangelical Seminary. Um, I think the number is one eight. For those of you who are wanting uh, more information about Southern Evangelical Seminary, uh, or you can go to ses.edu if you're looking for a school to learn apologetics to get trained rightly. Uh, to learn good uh, philosophy, I uh, I couldn't think of, uh, of a very many better schools than Southern Evangelical Seminary. So um, I would uh, throw out throw that out there for you guys. Um, give the number out one more time: seven six zero 
562-3907-760-542-3907. We're taking your calls. And we got Prem Isaac on the line. Prem, are you there? Yes, I am, Devin. All right. We have my okay, lovely Prem, wife. I'm glad to have you back after the break. Well, thank you. All right. Well, Prem, we... Um, Yes, one of the, what we're doing with the college students is we're taking them through a basic systematic theology, and we've hit now into the attributes of God. And one of the things that we're, we're coming to is that, um, I guess, let me ask you, what are some of the reasons why a Christian would need to know uh, the attributes of God? Is this just ivory tower type stuff, or uh, how does this help at a real level for, for a Christian? to know these attributes of God? Well, what's important? Yeah, I think it's very important. Uh, it's not ivory tower at all. It's, uh, it impacts the most important thing about us, which is uh, our worship of God. If anything, the most important activity we perform on the earth is worshiping God, getting to know Him, and thereby bearing witness to other people as to who God is. So if we have the wrong conception of, of God, we will not either worship Him correctly or display Him to other people correctly. So it has been said that the most important thing about a person is what they believe about God. So a knowledge of the attributes really helps us to know God as He truly is. And mm-hmm. having, having the truth of God in our lives actually sets us free. So... If we look at the Old Testament, we see that when God took Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness to the base of Mount Sinai, and he began to reveal his his nature to them, the very first thing he said to them, gave them, was, was the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments, God says, firstly, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment, he said, do not make any image of anything that is in the earth or in the sea or in the heaven above or under the earth. And essentially what he said is, I'm not a physical being. Don't make an idol to try and represent me. I am not like the gods of Egypt. I'm not like the gods of the Canaanites in the promised land that I'm taking you to. And so God first and foremost distinguished himself from being part of the created order. And so knowing uh, that God is a spirit being, for example, is the beginning of worship. Because Jesus told uh, the woman at the well outside Samaria, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But if mm-hmm. we don't know what, what we mean when we say spirit, if we don't understand that, then our concept of God would be wrong. We would think of God as sort of this physical being that can be in a given place at a given time, which is entirely wrong. So I think understanding the attributes clarifies and sets apart the Christian faith from cults, from other religions, and just basically truth from error. And it, it impacts how we worship God and, and our basis for trusting in God. So it's extremely right. important. It's not ivory tower at all. Right. I mean, I mean it appears as, you know, as we, even as we go through Scripture, like the Scripture you just mentioned, with um with Jesus um speaking to the woman at the well it just it, it seems that throughout scripture God is is revealing himself to us and he invites us to know him 
And I just find uh, it often where people, uh, Christians, feel that, you know, to study more and to get into the nitty-gritty, as we're, as we're going to do today, that that is somehow taking away from their faith in God, and um, and it's it's not benefiting them spiritually. Yeah, and uh, see, that's that's a misconception, and I think it is really a wonderful thing to know that we can exercise our mind very rigorously in the Bible, and the Bible will still hold up and give us content that is absolutely rigorous, absolutely steadfast, and it will increase our faith. Because the Bible in the New Testament, the Scripture says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So genuine faith is not based in our emotions. It's not based on how our day went, how our week went, how our month or even our, the past year went. It depends rather on the things which God has shown us through the scripture. So I think genuine faith should be based in study and reflection on the scripture, not on uh, feelings. So I would I would argue against the idea that somehow studying scripture and learning how to think about God through scripture and defending our ideas, that somehow that, that will remove uh, uh, or diminish our, our um our faith and our devotion to the Lord. Very good. Very good. I think you're absolutely right. Remember going through Geisler's <clears throat> Dr. Geisler's um Systematic Theology Volume Two, which I would highly recommend uh for those who want to learn more about the attributes of God. Um but you know, he said uh you know um to not worship the true God is, is really you're not worshiping Know, that which is really worthy of, of worship. And That's not, absolutely right. That's absolutely right. We we end up creating an idol in our minds when we don't have the true picture of God. And an idol can be something mental. It doesn't have to be something we carve out of stone or wood. It could be just having a wrong notion of who God is and then worshiping and praising that wrong notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that itself is, is, is we formed an idol. Whether we did it knowingly or not is, is besides the point. Uh, we are missing out on on worshiping the true God and hearing from Him and and knowing that it is He who is leading us and and guiding us. Mm-hmm. That's right. Absolutely. Well, problem. Let's start with uh, one of the central attributes of God, uh, which is pure actuality. What exactly is is actuality and, and um, how would you explain it? Okay, so to, to begin with, let's not begin with God himself. Let's start with something that all of us can relate to. Think of a block of marble. What okay. a block of marble actually is, it's a, it's a block of stone that has been cut out from a quarry. It is actually a block of marble. Well, that seems just simplistic to to say a block of marble is a block of marble, is actually a block of marble. Well, duh, well, of course it is. But it also contains within itself a potential to become something else, namely a statue. So we can say this is actually a block of marble, but it is also potentially a statue of George Washington, maybe, or Abraham Lincoln. 
So this block mm-hmm. of marble is potentially something else than just being a block. It, it has the potential to be something else. So a sculptor can work on the block and change it into a statue of, uh, of say, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. So now, at this point, the block of marble has changed, and its potential to be a statue has been actualized. So the actualization of a potential is change. So the block of marble changes into what it had a potential for. So another way to think about this would be, another example, rather, would be think of someone who is an average student in high school, and aspires to be a brain surgeon. What they are at the moment is an average student and, a, and a, is someone in high school, someone in their teens. But this person has the potential to become a brain surgeon in the future. And they can actually go through a process of change by going to the right educational institutions and applying what they learn and practicing what they learn. And perhaps six, seven, eight years down the road, they are no longer an average, uh, academic, academically average high school student. They are now somebody who is a brain surgeon. So at any given time, when we think about people or when we think about physical objects, they are a mix of actuality, which is a statement about what they are at the moment, and potentiality, which you can understand to be all the different things, all the different possible things that the object or person can become through some process of change. So, again, coming back to a physical object, think about a few pieces of wood, which are, let's say, broken up from a log. These pieces are actually wood, so their actuality is just that they are wood but they also have the potential to become charcoal. So these pieces are actually wood and potentially charcoal at the same time. Fire can act upon the wood and change it to charcoal. So at this point, the fire has actualized the potential of the wood to be charcoal, and the pieces have now been changed or actualized into charcoal. So... All real change involves moving from a condition of potentiality for that change to the actual change itself. So now we've talked about physical objects and we've talked about people as in human beings. What we're saying here when we talk about God being pure actuality is as follows. What we're saying is that God is the type of being or type of existing entity which has no potential to be anything different than what he already is. So that means that God contains in himself no possibility of any kind of change in in his nature, in his being. He cannot stop existing. For example, you can take a chair and just hack it to pieces and destroy it. And the chair that, was ex- that existed now no longer exists. 
it's possible to dis- for a chair to be fully destroyed and to stop existing as a chair. Well, such a potential exists in a car as well. A car can be in a car wreck or an explosion. So at any given time, a car is destroyable. It is possible for that car to undergo so much change that it just basically stops existing. Right. So it has potential. And But what we're saying when we say God is pure actuality, we're saying that God has no possibility to not exist or to stop existing. And he has no possibility or or potential for any kind of change. He is who he is. He can never be anything else. Who he was is who he will always ever be. Wow. And, and so that's what we mean when we say God is pure actuality. Mm-hmm. He, that is awesome. So, yeah, for example, you can see in the in the Bible that God is the cause of all physical things. For example, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that's the space, the entire universe, and the earth. Colossians 1.17 says, referring to God, He is before all things. And in John 1.3 we read, Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So when we talk about things, physical things and people, they all derive their existence from from God. So they come into being as a result of some other entity giving them existence. So God is the one who supplies existence to all these things. But God in himself has nothing else outside him that is making him what he should be. He just simply has no possibility of any kind of change in him. or He can't be anything else. He just simply is what he is. And this is why when, when Moses was being called by God, in the book of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, and Moses asks God, when I go to the children of Israel and I tell them that God appeared to me and told me to tell you that he's going to deliver you. And they ask me, this God of yours, what is his name? Well, what should I tell them? And God tells Moses his name. And his name is, I am. Simply, I am. Or, I wow. am what I am. Or, I, or simply, I exist. Mm-hmm. So, God names himself using pure actuality. He is mm-hmm. the I am. He is simply always the I am. And so we see this when when Jesus uh, is speaking to the to 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 his critics uh, among the Jews who were uh, critical of his ministry and of who he was. They bring up Abraham in conversation with him and say, "Are you greater than our father Abraham?" At which point Jesus re- responds to them and says. Before Abraham was, I am. Wow. And he he say he's he restates the name of God and identifies himself with the name of God, which is pure actuality. God is always the I am, not who he was and who he will be, as if the two are, are, are two different things. 
he, he simply is the I am, whether that's back in the Old Testament or in the New Testament or today. So this is what we mean when we say God is act, pure actuality. There's nothing that can act upon him and change him. When we talked about the wood, we said that the wood has the potential for becoming charcoal, but it needs something else to make it charcoal. In this case, right. it's the fire. Well, so the fire is necessary to make the wood, to act on the wood and change it into fulfilling its potential to be charcoal. In the case of the, the student, the high school student, it's going to be the university or the medical school that's the outside agent that's going to act on the student and change the student into being a doctor. Well, when we say God is pure actuality, it means there's nothing outside God that can have any influence on God that can cause God to be transformed or changed into anything other than what he already is. Uh, let me ask you uh, with this, Prem, uh, just real quick on this before. Well, I, I guess this would go right into immutability. Um, I'm just going to ask kind of contrasting how that would go with, for instance, like the Mormon God. Because um, they certainly wouldn't hold to, for instance, pure actuality. Is that right? That's right, because I think in Mormonism, if I'm not mistaken, we have the notion of, of a human who has the potential to become God. Right. And uh, they say that God used to be like us at one point, and that we actually can also transform and become uh, a God of sorts. So we can actually we actually have within us the potential to become God. And uh, so God is also somehow conceived of as a physical being because physical beings can change and sure. they can have the potential to, to be altered in some way, whether it's a minor change or a, or a radical change. A change is still a change. And if you, if you contain the potential to be something other than who you are, well, then that's not the God of, of Scripture. And uh, you look at Hinduism. In Hinduism, uh, God and nature are basically the same thing. Right. Uh, the Hindu Hindu conception of God is that God and the universe, or what we call the world, or what we refer to as the universe, is the same thing as God. And so when you see the universe changing, well, that's also God who's changing. And this this applies to the teachings of, like, Oprah Winfrey, Deepak Chopra, I mean, like, your heavy-hitting New Age people. Is, is that correct? Sure, because the, what they're suggesting is that to be God is something that can be attained from not being God. So mm -hmm. they're, they're suggesting that you can actually actualize yourself, which is a contradiction. Okay, sure. so... Going back to the example of the marble, the block of marble, the block of marble cannot make itself into a statue. The block of wood or the pieces of wood cannot make themselves into charcoal. You need an outside <laughs> agent that's going to right. do that for you. Right. And 
in the New Age movement, this, they they state that, well, you actually are God on the inside. It's just you don't know that you are God. And mm-hmm. you can, through a variety of techniques, realize your full potential and become God. But if we understand the nature of God correctly, God never became God. Because to become something, you need some outside agent that's going to make you different, like the fire made the wood into charcoal. Mm. Right. So what outside agent would there be for for God if there was if prior to the creation there was no, there were no stones, no sticks, no matter, no space, no time? Then how can nothing suddenly transform itself and become God? So God never became God. There's nothing outside God that actualizes him. He is mm-hmm. pure actuality. He already is just simply who he is. And our minds cannot fully, entirely grasp it, but we can see that it, this is what is taught in Scripture, that God is completely who he is. He mm-hmm. has no potential or possibility of growing greater or growing lesser or going out of existence or any change whatsoever. So this would go right with uh, right into immutability. And uh, let me give the number out real quick, and then Melissa, I think you had a comment, and then we can jump into immutability. Uh, the number is 760-542-3907, I'd love to hear from you guys. I know you guys probably got a lot of questions. So feel free to call, and uh, we'll get you on right away. Okay, Melissa, you were going to say something? Yeah, Prem, um, you know, I was when one of the things that really stuck out to me as the first time that I really grasped pure actuality and what that really meant um, was in terms of our existence as finite human beings and that we're possible beings, meaning, meaning that we we don't have to exist because, you know, we're changing beings. We don't have to exist. Our existence is not necessary like God's is, being that he doesn't have any potential to not exist. And to me that was so um, practical and personal. Um, and it has been for our students, too, as we, as we taught this a few times, um, because they come to understand that their existence um, is not by accident, um, but that they they could only exist unless God himself willed that they exist because he is He is pure existence and he gives existence to everything else. So being possible beings who don't, humans and, and the fact that we don't have to exist, the fact that God himself is existence and gives us existence is just, to me, it just opens up a new realm of God's grace in my life and that he even allows me to exist, um, let alone enjoy, you know, life and, and my husband and the other blessings in life. But just the fact that he gives me existence is just something to praise him for. Yeah, amen to that. Uh, exactly. I mean, understanding God's actuality means that we are, are we finally it finally dawns on us that God is the most stable um, existing entity, mm-hmm. something that can never ever be other than who He is. In fact, it's He is the only 
person or entity, if you will, the only existent. I don't want to call him a thing because he's not a physical thing. So I just refer to him as an entity, and and uh, not as a being. Because for 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 us to to say to speak about the being of God is problematic because we can never know the being or or the, or the nature of God directly. We cannot know anything beyond what he he reveals to us because mm-hmm. you can't see God or, or touch or feel God and um, you know photograph him or measure him or anything like that but right. God's existence is the only stable fact mm. in all of reality that's guaranteed not wow. to be anything other than it is and so from that flows all the other attributes, and from from him flows existence to other things according to his will. He he produces other things, he creates other things and gives them existence, and so right. he becomes our bedrock. Mm. Our existence so we are is completely grounded. dependent upon him, and that's, that's something right. that we need to remember. You know, just in our daily lives that. Um, just our very existence. We're just, we're completely dependent on God for our existence, and so therefore we need to depend on Him for every other area of our lives as well. Um, because, like you said, He is the only unchanging bedrock that there is. He's the only sure foundation. So that is just to me that just blows my mind every time I talk about this topic. You know, I just I get so excited, and it just um, it just makes me want to trust Him more and give Him. Uh, those things in my life that I try to control on my own, which I know that I can't ultimately. Um, but this does, you know, lead us into the discussion on immutability um, because uh, immutability, obviously, I'll let you explain it, but um, the attribute of God by which he is non-changing, and we talked about God being a purely actual being and what it would, um, if he if He did have the potential to change, um, that he couldn't be God. Um, can you kind of go into that and share um, about immutability and how it relates to pure, actua- pure actuality. Sure. When we speak about immutability, what we're saying is the property by which something does not change or some entity does not change or is incapable of change. So when we say God is immutable, we're saying that God cannot change. His being, his nature can never change. He can never change in any way at all. Absolutely in no way does God change. So firstly, does the Bible teach this? So before we go into looking at you know how immutability may relate to actuality, we just it should we should take a look at a few verses. So uh-huh. example would be Numbers twenty three nineteen. The scripture says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. 1 Samuel 15.29 says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And then if we look at Psalm 102, verses 26 and 27, the psalmist talking about the world and the universe says, They will perish but talking about God says, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. And then in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6, we read, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, 
O sons of Jacob, you are not destroyed. And in Romans 1.23, the scripture says that those who uh, didn't worship God properly, concerning them it says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So in this case, God is described as immortal, which means that the, the fact of him possessing life that can never change. He can never possess less life or more life or come to a, a point where he doesn't have life. So if God doesn't change his mind, uh, he doesn't, his being doesn't change, the life of God that he possesses doesn't change. Uh, and <clears throat> scripture in Hebrews chapter 6 says, concerning the oath that God uh, gave about his covenant, Scripture says, God did this, that is to say he gave the oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So there again we have the idea that God cannot be duplicitous. He cannot know one thing and say another. Uh, he cannot tell the truth at one moment and then change to telling a lie at another moment. And concerning Jesus, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So immutability, according to the doctrine of immutability, God cannot change. Now this follows from actuality because if God is pure actuality, he has no potential to be something else. So if we understand actuality then immutability follows. If God cannot be something else, then he cannot change into something else. It, it's contradictory to think that God can change and then still believe that God is pure actuality. Um, so, just, to, just thinking here, because I know there's going to be people that have the questions. Um, so what would we say, for example, um, with Jesus, right? Because we know Jesus came down and and took on a human body, um, would that be, an, would that be um, a death nail to the doctrine of immutability, or, or how would you explain that? Right. This is a very good question. It appears that there was some change in God when God took on human form. Does the Bible actually teach that God changed and became human? Or does the Bible teach that God didn't change, but he simply added on a human nature to his divine nature? So if we look at the book of Romans chapter 1, the opening verses talks about how Jesus was made a son of David according to the flesh, but he was declared with power to be the son of God According, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So, according to the flesh, Jesus was the son of David. But, as, as proven by his resurrection, he was declared to be the son of God. So, the way, we, the way we understand this is that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, without changing anything about his divine nature, 
took upon himself the form of a human being. We will, and we see this in the book of Philippians as well. That says that being in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on the form of a man and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Mm-hmm. So what we're saying here is that the human nature was something that was added on to the divine nature, okay, without mixing the two natures. So the divine nature did not change. And when we talk about immutability, when we say God never changes or God cannot change, we're talking about God's, the divine nature of Jesus. As far as we're talking about Christ, we, we refer to his divine nature. That's what didn't change. But the human nature, of course, went through progressive changes because we, we know he was born as a baby. We know in uh, the book of Luke, in the opening chapters, the Bible says that uh, Jesus grew in wisdom. That means he increased in wisdom. So that's a change. And in stature, which means he grew and became taller and taller. So that's a change. And he right. found favor with God and man. So as a human, he gained favor from having less favor to having more favor, both with God and with people. So these are changes in the human nature of Jesus. And so Jesus grows, he ages, and when he's put on the cross and crucified, he dies, which is also a change. So Mm. these changes are happening in Jesus' human nature, not in the divine nature of who God the Son is. That's why when Jesus is addressing the Jews, he says to them, when they bring up Abraham, the patriarch, and they question him, saying, are you greater than our father Abraham? And the answer of Jesus uh, touches on his divine nature, not his human nature. He answers, saying, before Abraham was, that is to say, before Abraham existed, I am. Mm -hmm. Not I was, but I am. Right. So... That means and that they picked up stones Jesus, to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying, that he was claiming absolute divinity. That's right. Immutability involves is, is a mark of divinity. Mm-hmm. Only, it, can only, it can only be said of God that he does not change. Everything oh. other than God is subject to change. Let me ask you this real quick, uh, Prem. When we talk you know, about the, the human nature of Jesus changing... Um, it seems like like the the cults really jump on this. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses come to mind. They really jump on this, and when they go to the door of uh, of unsuspecting Christians, uh, they seem to go to text after text after text of Jesus had a beginning, Jesus died, Jesus was hungry, Jesus wept. So it, it's really important um, to to make this this clarification between the two natures, right? Absolutely. And we, we see references to to the divine nature of Jesus scattered throughout the Gospels, and they're usually references pointing back into the Old Testament. For example, uh, Jesus asks his critics, uh, what do you think of the son of, uh, the son of man or the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they say, well, he's the son of David. He's a descendant of David. And then Jesus points out Psalm 110, which was written by David. And David is talking about the future Messiah. 
and he refers to the future Messiah as his Lord. And so Jesus asks them, if the Messiah is the son of David, why is David calling him Lord? You know, why right. would you call your your great 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 you know so many greats down grandson your Lord, as if he's higher than you, unless he is divine and therefore unchanging? So and the, and his critics were not able to answer him. So knowing the verses that deal with Jesus' divinity and the the idea that God never changes. And this was a central confession of the children of Israel. Every day when in their prayers, they would confess, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it was, it was commonly understood that immutability is entailed. So when they, when they make that confession, the same Lord who delivered them from Egypt is the same Lord they worship now. So mm. God does not change. He never changes. And here, in, with immutability, it's important to point out, many Christians think that when we say God doesn't change, what we mean is that God promises never to change his mind, or God promises to be faithful. As mm-hmm. if he can change, but he's just promising not to change. That is not what we mean when we say immutability. When we say God is immutable, we're saying God cannot change. It is impossible for God to be able to change mm-hmm. because that would involve God having a potential to be something different and so going back to what we said about pure actuality if God does not have the potential to be anything different it's not that God promises us that he won't change but rather that God simply cannot change it is impossible for God to change and that's why in the book of Hebrews it says it is impossible for God to lie it's not as though, you know, like like a person can promise, saying, I promise not to lie. Meaning, you know, I can if I want to, but I just promise that I won't. Well, that's not what God is saying when, that's not what the scripture says when, when in, in the book of Hebrews concerning God. Rather, it says, it is impossible for God to lie. It's just simply not possible, because that would be a form of change, and God cannot change. Um, absolutely, and, and those are that's so good. I'm so glad that you explained that, Prim, because um, there's some people who will uh, use certain verses, especially in the Old Testament. You know, for instance, um, you you read Malachi. Well, we talked about Malachi three six, where the Lord says that He does not change. Um, but then, like, there's a verse in Genesis six uh, six through seven, where um, uh, the Lord uh, is grieved in His heart and 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 repents that He made man. Um, also in Exodus 32:14, there's a verse um, that refers to God changing His mind, and many times this is used not only um, by atheists but also like within the open theist movement um, to show that God does undergo change and is in process. So, how would you answer those particular verses to, to be in yeah, line with God's mutability and pure actuality? Yeah, th- this is a very good question. Very, very important to for for us to understand how to handle these passages in the Bible. The scripture says he, he repented that he had created human beings. So this is Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. Mm-hmm. In fact, in 1 Samuel fifteen eleven, the Bible says God repented that he had made Saul king. 
And in Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, the Bible says he repented about his promise to destroy Nineveh. So in each case, it, it appears that it must be a change of mind because when we talk about repentance, we say repentance means a, in, involves a change of mind. The, the, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which simply means the changing of the mind. So it would appear from these scriptures that you know, God does change. So we need to understand that God, having created not just physical things, but space and time itself, God is actually outside of space and time. So the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the beginning is the beginning of time. The heavens, the creation of the heavens, well, that's the beginning of space. And the earth, spoken of in Genesis 1, is all the matter that there is. And and obviously the creation of that would be the creation of matter. So God precedes metaphysically. He is before space, time, and matter. Mm-hmm. That means for God, there is no today, tomorrow, day after, and yesterday. God all right. sees all things, and he knows all things. So here, this is just talking about God's moral um, con- uh, co- a contrast between what God's original intentions for humanity were mm-hmm. and his assessment of where humanity went, ended up going. So... When we say when we say when we see in the Bible that it says God repents, this is an anthropomorphism. That is human language is being used to describe that God appears to change. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a way of explaining this would be supposing you're you're uh, biking, you're, you're on a bicycle, you're biking, and there is a strong wind blowing in your direction. And the harder you bike, uh, the the more you feel the wind. So the wind appears to be resisting you. Now, instead of uh, going against the wind, you decide, I, well, I'm going to turn around. And so you turn around, and you start going in the same direction as the wind is. And now you find that the wind is actually helping you. It's not resisting you. Now, w- would you say that the wind somehow changed. No. Well, of course not. The wind is still blowing in the same direction. Right. The wind never changed. But mm. as, so far as you were going against the wind, you felt the wind resisting you. And insofar as you were going in the same direction as the wind is going, you feel the wind helping you. But this doesn't automatically mean that the wind changed. So in the same way, God's moral nature in relation to human action will be viewed differently. We will view God as being grieved when, when we see sin because God is always grieved at sin. Mm-hmm. God is grieved at all possible sin even before sin happened in, in one sense. He, he, he's, he, his nature is such that he will always be grieved at sin. But it becomes apparent, as in the case of the flood, God makes his... his, um, his anger known, and so at a certain point in time, we feel like, wow, God has, God, God is coming against us now. He's, he's repented of having created humans, and now he's going to destroy them. He's repented of having made Saul king, and now he's going to remove Saul from, from power. But God knew that these things were going to happen. 
because he's outside of time. So mm-hmm. it would be it would be akin to um, I don't want to push the analogy too far, but if you think about a play and a play and, and the actors, while the actors are on stage acting out the play, they already know what the what the next scene entails and how they're supposed to act and behave. The audience doesn't. So for the audience, they can see changes happening as it were. But in right. a sense, the actors possess knowledge of of the future of the play. They already know what how things are going to play out. So God, according to the Bible, being out of time, there's nothing in God that changes. He doesn't he isn't taken by surprise when human beings sin. He just he, all his actions are made known to us on a calendar of time because we are inside that framework of space and time. Mm-hmm. So for us, we see as if God is resisting the proud. When the proud humble themselves, then he gives grace to them, as if there's a change in God. Well, actually, in actual fact, there's no change in the nature of God, just like there was no change in the wind. But when a bicycle turns around, you feel a difference in the way the wind interacts with you. So here, it's an anthropomorphism to say that God repents. It is not literal that God changes his mind, because God knows. Like, for example, uh, in in the wilderness, at one point, the children of Israel sin against God, and God comes to Moses and says, leave me alone so I can destroy them. And then Moses prays to God. And the Bible says God heard Moses' prayer and then decided not to destroy them. Well, do we really think that God didn't know what Moses was going to do? Of course God knew, because he knows all things. He knows what is future to us. To him, all of it is present. So he already knows what to us is future. So, of course, he knows even if he says this to Moses, that Moses is going to pray. And he has already decided what he's going to do when Moses prays. So, but Moses doesn't know that. So it may appear to Moses that God changed his mind. Right. But God, God's knowledge of our future implies that there's no change in his mind, and God, God knows what he intends to do in our future as well which is why we see prophetic books like the book of Revelation, which lay out even God's actions in, in, right. in our future. Uh, but it's not future to God. Wow. Very good. That's powerful. Just an, you know, that's just another truth that we can hold on, is that um, we're in time, we're limited, and these events in our lives are being played out, but they're no surprise to God because he's outside of time. So that, just in a practical sense, should give us some assurance in this life and comfort and knowing that our lives are not unknown to God or they're not in limbo, but God is completely sovereign in complete control. And and that's what I love about talking about these attributes because it just gives me such um, a much more deeper uh, dependence upon God uh, and reverence for him. Amen. Let me me bring this up, too, really quick. you know, as we're talking about the immutability and God being eternal in that, um, it's very important um, that we, I think, um, kind of shed a little light uh, on, the, you know, the Jesus of the Bible, right? The Jesus of the of the Trinity, the Jesus who is, you know, the second person of the Godhead. 
contrasted, for instance, um, Jesus and Islam, or Jesus as the Jehovah's Witness, or, the, or in Mormonism. Very, very different Jesus, right? And it is these attributes um, that, that are we able to determine, uh, you know, from the kingdom of Christ to the kingdom of the cults. Yes, absolutely. Uh, when we read the Gospels, we should keep, we should bear in mind divine attributes. And when we are look, when we are reading the Gospels, be mindful of those attributes and look for passages in the Gospels where Jesus is identified. Jesus can be identified as divine because he shares these attributes. Mm-hmm. So. We, we see that, for example, professional fishermen couldn't find fish all night long. And then Jesus does, isn't even in the boat. And he, he instructs Peter to cast off and go into the water again and then throws the nets and then Peter finds the fish. So much fish that the nets start breaking and he needs help from other boats to, to bring the catch in. And it becomes obvious to Peter that Jesus is not just human. And Peter falls to his knees and says, "Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a, I, I'm an, I, I'm a, I'm a sinner." And so he be, he recognizes divinity at that point because Jesus is manifesting omniscience, that is to say, knowledge of all things. That Jesus somehow knew where the fish were beforehand. Um, so there are these points in the Gospels where the actions of Jesus or the words of Jesus, um, I, he, through the actions or these words, he identifies himself with, right. with divinity, with deity. And mm. if you don't take that into account, then you're going to see him as a good teacher maybe or as the Muslims do, a prophet right. or as a human son to a divine being that Jesus is God's human son or something, something like that. And what I did, uh, I I posted a link in the chat room, uh, 100 Truths About Jesus, and you'll see all throughout the scriptures and the Gospels where Jesus is claiming these divine attributes such as eternality um, and uh, uh, that he's immutable and these sort of things. So you definitely want to check out that link to get more information. And I'll tell you, from this this hour and 15 minutes just flew by, brother. I, I, you know, I've learned so much and... um, can't thank you enough for being here with us and, and sharing all this wonderful information. We've got to have you back, like, really soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be on. You guys thank are you. doing a great right. work reaching reaching many people, and uh, so really encourage you. I'm encouraged by, by what you're doing, so keep up the good work, and uh, God bless your efforts. Thanks, Pram. We love you, brother. Thank you for having me. God bless God you, bless. brother. Thank, thank you, thank you so much me. for yes. being here. All right, folks, that's my dear brother, Prem. So blessed to have him in my life, so blessed to know him, and uh, just a a group. But uh, we will be back next week. Uh, Right, Melissa? Got Lord willing? Yep, we will be back. We'll be back. So I ask you to uh, keep us in your prayers. Uh, Keep praying little baby Paloo. And uh, we look forward to next week. We'll do another uh, good, exciting show. Thanks, yeah, guys. keep an eye on the Facebook page. We'll be posting some links related to today's show. Uh, it's Facebook slash Theology Matters with the Palouse.
Yep, and so. let your friends know about the show. You can download it after the show and, and let them uh, listen in. Great show. All right. God bless, guys. God bless, everyone. Have a great week. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays it.